Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. This is your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have a great show today. Uh, however, to start the show off and to talk some news, I do have with me Mr. Martin Willis of Podcast UFO. Yo, hello. How's it going? Good, good, good. Good, good. So, Spring uh, is in the air. Spring is in the air. I know. It's great. The weather's getting better, um, and everything's looking up uh, for at least weather-wise. But, um, and I've got a show. So I've been gone for a few weeks. I apologize to the audience for that, but uh, there was vacation time. And you know what I want? I really wanted to focus on, and, and that's where I got my guest on, is the Scientific Coalition for Ufology, that conference that went on, the AAPC. Mm. Some of you know I've been involved with the SCU, and uh, so I really wanted to focus on that and what was going on there to digest it and uh, to um, capitalize as much as possible on this event. And this event became, you know, to me more important than I even thought. But we'll talk about that. Uh, first, though, I want to talk to you about my guest. My guest is Dr. Kevin Knuth. He is from the Department of Physics, a professor there, an associate professor at the University of Albany, also known as SUNY, the State University of New York. So kind of a big deal. Um, and he has also worked uh, at NASA as a NASA research scientist. Um, he's a professor of physics. He teaches space, um, all kinds of really cool stuff. And he had a great talk. So we're going to talk to him about science and the UFO topic. And then we're also going to talk to him about this kind of idea that he put forward in the conference. It has to do with kind of space-time when it deals with space travel and this idea of um, how, uh, you know, time may be very different for whatever may be visiting us. So from that perspective, it could answer some of the questions uh, as to why what we see when it comes to the phenomena uh, is so enigmatic. So we'll talk about that uh, with our discussions with uh, Kevin. But he was so great. He was a great presenter. The SCU is going to have his talk up eventually here um, as a prepare it, but uh, it was it was really good. Well, I can't wait to listen. This I love this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to listen. You know, there was another. There have been, in my opinion, very few very serious science oriented uh, conferences, and uh, you, you and I met at one. In North Carolina, right. that's where we mm -hmm. first met, and and I think Leslie Kane was kind of the main person to organize the speakers, and of course she's very credible. She's behind the December what seventeenth two thousand seventeen article that you know the Pentagon thing came out sixteenth sixteenth uh, right, and um, and so she was the perfect person to put this together for Kent Center, 
who uh, right. was part of MUFON over there, and uh, mm-hmm. that was a really great event. But this felt like that, if not better. It was a very science-oriented, small group, um, very intimate, but it was really incredible to have such a high level of uh, of credibility, of um, of experience. You know, some of these speakers had multiple PhDs, and to be talking seriously about this topic, uh, ideas around this topic, and how to move forward, and then to have Luis Elizondo there to also share this information with these guys um, to add to that conversation, uh, and how Putoff was there the whole time. It was, wow. uh, yeah, it was a really incredible event. Very important. And, uh, you know, there'll be more information coming out about the talks as time goes on. Wow. I uh, really wish I could have gone there. I, yeah. You no, know, uh, I got, I was contacted by a few people that were going and I really wanted to go. But mm-hmm. I had just got back from, um, um, you know, six weeks away. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, but we do have some of our listeners, you know, were there. So, uh, others have shared. And, you know, Kevin and I go over this. There's been a little bit of criticism because there has been some information that has gotten out. And uh, the SEU has been like, hey, guys, you didn't have permission to get that information out. So, mm. please don't share yeah. that, which Uh-oh. is a completely fair thing to ask. So, there have been people frustrated with that, saying, hey, you know, they're trying to. Um, edit this information or at least uh, be controlling with the information. And you know what, people? Uh, that's how professional organizations work, really. Uh, pretty much every event I go to, I'm invited at for press, some of these cool things that I get to go to, you know, NASA facilities and stuff. There's always information that is embargoed, information I can't share for maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. Um, and then there's often information that they want off the record. And so you can't share that at all. And of course, you know, with me speaking with all of these uh, different individuals, the more, I guess, professional, the more uh, credibility or kind of the more, uh, like Alexander talked about with risk aversion, uh, the more professional the person, the more sensitive an area they're in, the less they're going to, they're going to be more careful about the way they speak with this because they don't want to hurt credibility amongst their peers. And so Kevin and I talk about this and working and writing with scientists. And I, we often have these discussions when I have these meetings with scientists and stuff off the record discussions. Um, there's, there's a, difficulty they have with working with the media because their information is is you know they can't get it misconstrued when you're a journalist if you get something they say wrong that can have a very big effect on them because uh you know it may get out there that you know this scientist is misrepresenting their work or is uh, doesn't understand the science correctly and then they lose credibility so it can have it can be very impactful. So when you're working with these sorts of people, uh, how you release and what you release is extremely important. And uh, at least it's my position at the SCU that we'd be very strict about it uh, because we want to make this safe environments for scientists. So that's why uh, that information is metered. And to be completely honest, and I don't mean to be disrespectful for anybody listening who shared information they shouldn't have, it is actually very unprofessional not to get permission to share information before you share it. Um, you know, if, if you're truly trying to help this cause, you, you'll you definitely want to do that because some of these people like our guests today, they may 
uh, you know, we may share something that is very detrimental to their career and then they'll never want to participate in this topic again because they don't feel there's a safe professional space for them to do this work in. So that's why it's so mm-hmm. important that that information uh, be carefully managed. Can you uh, give a quick example of what type of information was shared that shouldn't have been? Well, and not uh, details of it, just something they said or I'll say this. I'll say, uh, well, here's an, uh, for instance, uh, Elizondo didn't really want the Q and a shared because he shared most mm. of this is not necessarily around being inaccurate, but, um, he was kind of, I think, teetering on uh, the edge of what he can share as far as the History Channel show that's coming up, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But also, he he commented on personal, you know, things about his family and stuff that he really didn't want to share. Um, because, uh, as we all know, as you and I know, everything we say uh, on these shows is scrutinized. And uh, anything that we say can be used in social media to attack us or make fun of us or what have you. And it's unfortunate. It's it's not justified, uh, nor is it professional or even, uh, you know, copacetic in any way. But there's a lot of mean people out there on the Internet. So um, and there has been blowback and personal kind of effects that he has experienced from people just being very cruel, you know, and then the family seeing this and being like, oh, my gosh, what are these people saying about my dad or, or something, you know, mm. um, you probably get that, uh, you know, I know I feel, you know, what are people I rarely see, see people saying something bad about you in particular, but certainly uh, other colleagues, you know, you hate it. That's when I get more mad when people are being mean or unjustified and bashing, you know, some of our friends and or colleagues or other people in this field. So. Um, that's the sort of thing, but otherwise, you know, what can even hurt more and we'll get into this with Kevin actually, uh, and get into this topic and what he's written, um, in just a minute when we get into the news, but, uh, I'll kind of talk about this some more and Kevin and I will talk about it some more too. And later in the show. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. SEU wise though. Uh, because you weren't there, are there any questions I can answer? Were there any like burning questions you were like, I wonder if this happened or that happened or, um, yes, that I know they, they discussed, um, or Robert Powell discussed the Nimitz case, Mm. but were there other, um, cases that were discussed in depth like that? No, that's a great question. Well, I shouldn't say that. Yes, there were two cases that, in particular that were covered because they've been thoroughly researched by the SCU. And that was the Aguadilla case, the Puerto Rico uh, Homeland mm. Security video case, mm-hmm. and then also the Nimitz case. Uh, because uh, as you know, because you're one of the re- one of the few people, uh, Roberts even told me he, he would rather wait to for the report to come out to talk about it. Uh, and we will have a video up eventually to talk about, you know, uh, the findings that uh, Robert Powell and uh, Peter Reality came up, or Relati, I keep messing up his last name, but I came up with. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, so it was just mostly those two cases. Otherwise, it was um, more general. So, uh like, for instance, with Kevin, he kind of like his analysis of time, space and, and space flight and how that would affect perspectives or, uh, you know, another Taylor, um, Travis Taylor, really 
you know, charismatic guy. He came up and talked about, he's got two PhDs, talked about what if aliens attacked, what would we do? And this is something he's written a big book on. So it is speculation, but it's, you know, he's really done a, a thorough analysis like we would do with a, a, you know, a foreign adversary on what might happen. So really interesting stuff there too. I would be interested to know what his thoughts are. Mm-hmm. If alien attacked us, what will we do? Great That's, talk. So I we'll have we that should, up. Uh, yeah. At the SCU site, I, I would join them. I, for one, no. welcome uh, <laughs> our new alien overlords. Yeah. Yeah, you would. I would, yeah. All right. So uh, before we get into that, let's talk news. So, what do you, would you like to start off with, buddy? Well, you know, it's not news so much as just an interesting story. It's in Forbes. And, uh, um, Aiden Gillen from um, the new, you know, Project Blue Book. Not so new. There are several yeah, episodes out there. First season's over. And you know what? I, he's a great actor. I think he did well personally with Heineck. He made him very likable. I, yeah. I do have my criticisms of the show, and my final review is going to be posted any second now, um, by oh. the way. So I'll share that. Um, accuracy was out the window, you know, as it mm. got worse as time went on. But it was still an entertaining show, and I think Aiden Gillen did great. What did you think? Uh, I think, you know, he's absolutely uh, – he, he just becomes such a, uh, a focus and such a, you know, you want to like him. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think he's great. I think he did – I think he did the part really well, and I think he really took care to make sure he did. Mm-hmm. You know, when I um, – spoke with Dave O'Leary, he'd say that he'd get a call from him, what would your dad do if this happened? You know, that type of thing. So he really did have, um, you know, he really had care to do the uh, portraying as accurate as possible mm-hmm. in a given situation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So anyway, the story is called um, that he uh, talks UFOs in his new show, Project Blue Book. And... <clears throat> Pardon me. And um, so it talks about the 10-episode the uh, drama series based on renowned astrophysicist, astrophysicist <laughs> Dr. Joseph, I didn't know that was his first name, J. Allen Hynek, who studied mm. UFOs. And uh, it had quickly become one of the top shows of the year, which I think that's pretty nice. I think it was um, in three-something million viewership or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably even says it somewhere in, the, in this story. So it basically talks about um, the relation of the UFOs reported um, through uh, the United States Air Force from 1952 to 1969. Over 12,000 of them were reported, but it talks, again, it starts getting into the Irish actor, and by the way, he really lost his accent very well, um, Aidan Gillen, and uh, they say in this article that they think he brilliantly plays Dr. Hynek. And, uh, of course, you would remember him from Littlefinger from, from uh, Game of Thrones, if you ever watched that. So in a phone interview, he discussed how it differs portraying a real person as opposed as a fictional character. And he says it's both daunting and exciting, though more so exciting. And uh, it isn't the first time he's delving into a real, a real person on screen. But he explains the, uh, you know, the differences and all that. Um, so they go on to ask him about um, UFOs and um, is he a believer or not. And he says, uh, I'm quoting here, I've seen a couple of things. 
he says he describes a time when he was with friends and they saw something in the sky they couldn't explain and he said this wasn't long after seeing the 1977 classic close encounters of the third kind we were all kids and we saw something inexplicable it was also at a time that we were really looking for something and i i totally understand that also he adds that his mother saw something in the 1950s in rural ireland and uh that was a time when UFOs were the topic of conversation on TV and on the radio, and people were really looking for them and wanted to see them. And he believes that it's quite improbable that we that we're alone in the universe, uh, which is uh, wait a minute, did I read that wrong? Uh, yeah, I believe that it's quite improbable. I'm sorry, improbable that we're alone in the universe. Yeah, I, he I, said I, it I, kind I of strangely, yeah. but. You, you got it. Yeah. And uh, it's highly likely that there are other civilizations. I think most people um, in our society today are feeling that way as time goes on more and more. Mm-hmm. I would what? really love to talk to him like I did with Michael Malarkey. Um, Michael Malarkey, for instance, didn't think much about the topic, uh, really. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then when he got involved with the show and he read like Rupelt books, uh, the the blue book chief uh who wrote a book on on you know project blue book he was like oh my gosh you know there's just so much evidence that there's a real phenomena here that uh his involvement with the show is what convinced him and i wonder if that's the same way with aiden gillen uh it seems as though but uh i wonder if it is well he had a little bit of a jump on the topic Mm -hmm. to begin with yeah with his sightings true Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so that's a great article in forbes Right. So a couple other articles. Actually, I have a couple articles that kind of answer your question, too, to how does, you know, how can information get misconstrued? So uh, we have this article from Kevin Knuth, my, uh, who we're going to hear from in just a second, uh, at least about him, that came out um, fairly recently. And the title is, Ex-NASA Scientist Says That UFOs Are Real and the Government Covers Up Alien Life. That's the Tech Times headline, which is completely inaccurate. They're talking about Kevin Knuth. And what happened is for, um, you know, UFO Day, June 2nd, I think, or July 2nd is is the day. Um, There was someone who asked, you know, they were asked at uh, the university, would someone like to write an article about UFOs? And he said, sure, I'll do it. So he wrote an article for The Conversation, and the title is, Are We Alone? The Question is Worthy of Serious serious Scientific Study. So he's making an argument here that uh, we should take the, the potential, you know, the UFO phenomena seriously um, and look at it. And it's a great article. This article actually originally came out in like June of 2018. And then I think because he was speaking at SEU, there's been, uh, you know, the tabloids even picked up this story and wrote about him recently. Um, so, and but they did kind of, you know, uh, not get things right. And that's the hard part. He is not saying there's a major cover-up. In fact, if you read his original story, he says... By not sharing information, it makes it look like there's a cover-up. Right. And he also says by scientists uh, who are skeptical coming up with ridiculous debunking uh, theories for UFO um, 
incident, he says that also hurts and gives the impression that there's a, a major conspiracy. Um, mm-hmm. Because you and I complain about that often, that you know the skeptics right. will say, oh, I can answer a, a and B out of a whole list of seven or eight you know, pertinent facts, and so they can blow it off because they feel they can answer one or two aspects. Right. Um, it was Venus because it's in the sky. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it's one of the frustrations, you know, even with the Aguadilla report, you know, this what there was a light coming out from the ocean over towards this airport in Puerto Rico. The Homeland Security guys are actually Border Patrol essentially thought, uh oh, is this a drug runner? It looked low. They aim their camera on it and they get this object. The light turns off, but they can see the object in their flare, you know, at night. They're infrared essentially. Um, so, uh, you know, but a lot of people throw that out the window and say, oh, in this infrared, I can tell this, I can tell that. But they throw out the witness testimony and the reason why they're looking in the first place. It's an example of how, you know, if you don't take all the information, then um, you're not really examining the entire facts of the case. You know, did they did they talk about that from the beginning? Because I had they I did only heard that part of it a month ago about the light. Well, here's well, here's the other issue. Um, and this is the other, uh, this is another example why you need to be careful with the way you get out information. In fact, Elizondo said something great, uh, and I love it. He said, you know, we're not here to satisfy idle curiosity. He said, I understand you guys want uh, people out there want information as quickly as possible, and we want to get it to people as quickly as possible, but not at the detriment of the case or what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, we're not going to, you know, to, to jeopardize the case um, to satisfy idle curiosity. And I totally agree with that because this is an example with Aguadilla. If you don't have all of the pieces of information in total, then the case isn't as substantial. And that was uh, something that, I, you know, I think that um, just it gets lost in conversation. People don't, you know, take a step back. Here's another example. I tweeted, and and it was a, being a little bit on rate, um, that Elizondo said tip was 100% UFOs. Because some people are doubting out that out there because they say, well, we don't have a government document that says that. Well, so what? I mean, here's why nobody cares. Here's why only these really kind of ornery people in the UFO community, some will get frustrated with me saying this, but this is the truth. Here's why they're the only ones who care. Because we have the guy who created, got the funding for the program, saying, yep, we created this program. I sought this funding to investigate the paranormal, including UFOs. We have Lou Elizondo, who ran the program. It's verified he's ran the program, saying this was 100% UFOs. We have Hal Putoff and other Bass employees who were contractors with the project, saying, yes, we were looking in UFOs. What more do you need? These are the people mm. working in the project. They've already explained how when they described the project or when they, uh, you know, the project goals on paper had to be enigmatic because they didn't want people to bash them for being some kind of UFO group. So they had to kind of hide the wording or play with the wording so it wasn't obvious. So th- it's obvious that we wouldn't, you know, that we're seeing what we're seeing in these documents. Given we need more documents and it's always good to be skeptical um, but you know, for the for the common sense person out there, and for the media, okay, we have it confirmed from everybody involved with this program, high level, credible people, that it was UFOs. Fine, it's UFOs. Now, what are the critics saying that 
they're, they're essentially saying that the documents don't say UFOs. They use terms oh. like um, advanced aerial threat, you know, okay. um, identification of foreign threats, all of this, which is, you know, veiled terminology for what is a foreign mm. threat. And an unknown object is also a foreign threat. So, which is what Elizondo said. And, you know, we investigated those in particular looking for those which exhibited technology or uh, performance that we can't achieve ourselves. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so that's that's sort of the problem that gets in there. But it's a great article. Uh, another example of this is a, is a Montana tech professor who recently uh, talked about how I hypothesized that UFOs could be from the future. What is the headline? MT tech professor claims UFOs are time machines from the future. What is his quote? Uh, his quote is that it's potential. Um, yeah. that it's a possibility. He's not saying they are. In fact, he even right. says maybe. Um, so he's. Mm. It's just uh, this is an example where you know their words. Yeah. Even a slight change can have a problem. But this is a really interesting article about this professor who's saying, you know, this could be a possibility. And uh, what's great about the article more so is he's saying, you know, we as professors and scientists and academics need to take a look at this field. And, you know, there could be some answers like this. Uh, how interesting would this be if, you know, we're witnessing people from the future? So right. another great article. And I'm going to go through these other ones really quickly because we've ran out of time. But uh, there's one in an article in a, a, a website called The Outline. Belief in aliens could be America's next religion, um, something I've been talking mm. about, too, and I love. And this is based on Diana Pasulka, her new book uh, that came out kind of talking about some of this stuff. Uh, really interesting article. Uh, a War History Online article about Foo Fighters. So this is really cool. Researched article on that. And this is a Forbes article. So at the same time as our event in Alabama for the SCU, there was another somewhat similar event happening in France and uh, Paris. And this is something that happens yearly. It was actually Monday the 18th where a bunch of scientists got to together to talk about aliens and UFOs. Uh, in particular, um, scientists meet to investigate the great silence. In other words, you know, Fermi's mm. paradox, why are we not seeing aliens? And a lot of these scientists are seriously hypothesizing things like the zoo hypothesis, that they're just coming here to look at us, or mm. a galactic quarantine, that we are dirty uh, apes <laughs> and we, you know, can't be uh, trusted to go out there in space. So, you know, just another scientific uh conference where they're looking at these things that happen in Paris. So this is a great wow. Forbes article. And then finally, yeah, um, you all may have seen the last episode of Project Blue Book, and uh, it was about the Washington, D.C. sighting. So there's some great articles uh, that even quote myself that uh, the History Channel had put out there on the 1952 uh, encounters over Washington. And those are good. These History Channel articles are well-researched. They are fact-based, even if the show isn't. So the history articles are great, and I highly recommend people read those articles. I think they do a pretty good job of covering all the UFO cases, the real ones that were in the um, television shows. And, you know, there are allusions to other UFO cases in the Project Blue Book show. And if you want more about those, you're going to have to read my reviews because I don't think everybody catches those 
other mm. UFO stuff. And I know David O'Leary, the writer, is a UFO buff, so he is definitely aware of what he's doing when he makes these other references. So there's probably many I miss, but uh, at least the ones I catch, I write about and provide information on in my reviews. And I'll have mm. my last review coming out real soon here. Great. Wow. We really went over time. Interesting news, huh? It's great. Yeah, packed full. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Let's go ahead and talk with Professor Kevin Knuth. I am very happy to welcome for the first time to the show, Kevin Knuth. Uh, and, and am I saying that correctly? Yes, that's correct. It's the Scandinavian pronunciation, so that's right. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, so there are other types of pronunciations as well, huh? Uh, English, <laughs> where the N would, yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, um, it's great to have you on. It was very uh, great to see you at the um, SCU Scientific Coalition for Ufology Conference. All of the names and everything are, are a mouthful. The uh, Anomalous Aerospace Phenomena Conference, and I guess we could start off there. So you are a scientist, a professor, and one of the things that we got a lot of feedback for, they had feedback for when putting together the conference, was the naming, and um, really a, a lot of advice to shy away from and stay away from the term UFO. And I was wondering, um, you know, is that something you would recommend as well, so they use this term, you know, anomalous aerospace phenomena, which is great. It's an accurate term, but do you see that issue? I mean, uh, with your colleagues? Um, yeah, potentially. the The <clears throat> terminology is always difficult because some terms carry a lot of extra um, baggage, or sometimes in science they'll have a common meaning which isn't quite the same as the scientific meaning and that can lead to um, confusion in some cases so so I, I don't know I think that you know UFO is a pretty charged term at this point and it might help to come up with more precise terminology um, and then it may not mm -hmm. now in your experience now especially online this was kind of interesting I wonder if you saw this People seem to be very concerned about you uh, and your reputation getting hurt or you having to kind of hide from your interest or, or your participation in this conference, worried that, uh, you know, you may suffer negative repercussions in your career. Did you have those fears or concerns? Um, I've, I have had those concerns and I would continue to have those concerns Um, my I, I have a pretty solid reputation at this point, an international reputation, so I would hope that that would carry some weight. And um, my interests in this have always been clear, so I think that this is something that should be studied. I don't have any statements about, you know, as to what the solutions are yet, so, and I think that scientists should study things. I think it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have, or, or at least there are a lot of important people, I will say, or other uh, scientists kind of uh, coming out, and, and it seems like we have this 
environment where uh, scientists feel a little more comfortable to go to the potential alien explanation. For example, um, what you refer to the Dyson sphere, and there's been a lot of talk about, you know, um, um, Tabby's star, uh, the Oumuamua uh, thing that came through, you know, this Harvard scientist suggesting it could be alien spacecraft. It seems like there is a little bit more of a, of an acceptance of at least entertaining the idea that there could be other uh, civilizations out there trying to come take a look at us. Yeah, I think that's correct. And I think there's a good reason for it. If you think about you know, the near 1947, which is when Kenneth Arnold, you know, saw saucers near Mount Rainier, um, the, what, what was 1947 like? Well, this was 10 years before Sputnik. And in fact, even two weeks before Sputnik, you had the, you know, the Royal Astronomer in Britain declared that space travel was bunk. And that was two weeks before Sputnik. So 10 years before Sputnik, we hadn't really, we still weren't really considering space travel as a serious possibility. Um, not everyone was sure it was physically possible. Um, we didn't have a great deal of knowledge about what the planets in our solar system were like. And we didn't know at all whether there were any other planets around any other stars. We assumed there probably were, but we didn't have any information about that at all. So 1947, the idea that there could be um, advanced civilizations from other star systems visiting Earth was just almost off the table. Mm -hmm. uh, we just didn't have that kind of knowledge and that our worldview wasn't prepared to accept something like that. Now you fast forward, what is it, 70 years or so to, to this point in time, and now we're looking at, um, we ourselves have visited other planets. Um, you know, we've put men on the moon, we've launched um, probes to the major bodies in our solar system, and we've got, you know, two space probes, the two Voyager, uh, the craft and the Pioneer craft actually are both leaving the solar system at this point. And moreover, we have plans ourselves to visit the nearest star. We're aiming to get to Alpha Centauri by 2069. This is one of the goals that NASA has. So, um, so we're, we are working toward interstellar travel ourselves. And and more even, you know, and, and to add to that, we also now have knowledge about planets around other stars, and we're learning about them. So I think the situation's changed, and we now have a better picture of what the universe is like and realize that, you know, we are a civilization that really is attempting to do this, and we have had some success at this point. So it's not unreasonable to accept the possibility that there may be other civilizations out there that may have tried to do this as well with varying degrees of success. Mm -hmm. And another aspect to it that I think it actually is important, and it may seem silly, but, uh, you know, being a journalist who's gone and covered uh, a lot of science and NASA, this is a this is kind of a big deal is how do we outreach to the public? And it's it's fun. Like, for instance, when you're presenting about this and, and, and making your postulations or, or you know, um, it, it's fun to think about this stuff. And it does serve a scientific purpose also. It's speculation based on science. Yeah, it is fun. And I think, you know, this is how, this is how breakthroughs are made. You know, you go back to, 
you know, the late 1800s when Robert Goddard was in his cherry tree and was thinking about launching, you know, run, launching his model rockets and imagined what would it look like to have a rocket that would launch from this meadow and go to Mars? You know, it's a fun thing to speculate, but what did, what did that lead to? That led to the development of liquid fuel rockets, which led to the moon missions and Mars missions. You know, at this point, we're, we have groups now seriously consider, considering the possibility of colonizing Mars. And so, this is 100 years later. So, I think these, you know, imagination is an important part of, you know, that drives our interest in science now. Now, of course, imagination affects um, our advancement, um, not necessarily that of anyone else, but, but it could serve to inform us um, as to how to perhaps detect spacecraft moving through interstellar space from star to star, you know, and, and how to look for civilizations on other worlds and things like this, and this, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Another question I have for you uh, before we move into kind of the topic of your presentation at the event was uh, at the AAPC, the uh, Anomalous Aerospace Phenomena Conference. Um, I guess what was it like for you? For those of us who have been involved, I've been involved with helping this organization grow from the beginning. And for us, it was very exciting to have – there have been scientific uh, – oriented organizations before but um what's great about this group is it's a lot of doers people who have been in the business let's say for uh decades working on this mystery but also um they in the past the scientists involved with this field have not been enthusiastic about sharing information more of research but what's great about this group is it's more uh looking towards also sharing information with the public which is exciting so it was an exciting event for us and great to have you involved how was it for you oh i was well, i was very um very excited about it very interested in in attending and meeting some of the people there to find out what work has actually been done, what data has actually been gathered, um, what the possibilities are for, for future investigations, and, and I was glad to be surrounded by scientists, people who are actually studying, interested in studying this and actually using a careful methodology to look at the data at hand as sparse as it is, um, and I think I had uh, several interesting conversations of what could be done next, and um, and I look forward to working on some of this. Mm -hmm. Was any of the information surprising to you? Um, you know, just as an outsider, especially uh, related to Luis Elizondo, and that you know the Pentagon was working on some of this and what they were looking at. Uh, yeah, some of that was quite surprising. Um, he mentioned a few things, I think, during the Q&A that will be coming out in May during the History Channel's docu-series. So, so I don't want to mention anything um, specific, but, but, um, but I was kind of shocked as to some of the encounters that, he, you know, he described. Um, and uh, and I, I would... It would be very exciting to get some real data on that, to get high-quality visual images as well as infrared images and radar data and, and possibly even spectra. That, that would be very exciting. Um, and so I'm hoping at some point that, that, that some of that data will be released. Mm -hmm. And I guess when you, when you see that, I guess um, 
How does it make you feel as a scientist, someone interested in space? I mean, it would seem like you would be as excited as the rest of us. It's, it's pretty exciting. It's exciting, but at the same time, it's frustrating. Mm. Um, I At this point, they are... Uh, let's see. I don't. I don't quite want to use this word, but because it's not not quite accurate. But they they're still stories. It's still stories that you hear from people. Now these are very reliable people. People who, you know, if they're if they're joking around or lying, it's costing us you know tens of thousands of dollars easily, um, maybe millions of dollars. So it's a big deal. Um, so they're people I would I would tend to believe, but. Um, but they're pretty fantastic stories when you are, you know, fa- um, pretty fantastic accounts when you when you really get down to it. You, you know, you get an idea of what speeds these things are moving at through the air, but you don't have any sonic booms. You know, they can come to a sudden stop and you don't have a heat dump, which you, you would expect to have. Um, in fact, um, Peter Reale in his talk um, estimated the amounts of energy involved and you're talking, you know, several kilotons of TNT going off per second <laughs> you know, for some of these craft, which, you know, those were his estimates, which I think are, are you know, they're ballpark estimates, but they're they're about about what you would expect for this type of behavior. So so the accounts are surprising and and so yes, it's very exciting at one level, but as a scientist it's also frustrating because I would like to see real data. I'd like to see, you know, radar data so that you can get much more precise estimates of the velocities and accelerations and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And then I guess it, it, uh, one last comment on, on the conference itself is for to encourage the participation or to um, uh, make it kind of a safe space for someone like your yourself, who's who's you know embedded in the scientific community and and uh, academic community, um, how do uh, how do we make a safe space for for people like yourself uh, to speak on this topic? Because uh, obviously you've put some thought towards it. Uh, your your presentation showed that. Uh, it's difficult to do. I think that one of the one of the things that I saw happening was that information was being released pretty much immediately from the conference to the internet. The internet, as we all know, is a pretty hostile place for pretty much anybody. <laughs> so, so um, it's you know you you can't control the information once it's released onto the internet, and so it's a difficult balance. You've got people who really want to know you know, and, and share this information. And I really appreciate that. But at the same time, you have, um, if you want scientists to speak and tell you what they know, you have to make them feel secure. Now, the difference, the difficulty is that different scientists are going to feel differently. And, and people are going to feel, some people are going to be more, um, more willing and more open, you know, to, Talk, talk about what they believe and what they and they have figured out and other people are going to be more reticent and I think it's the first thing to do is to really respect those differences and not second guess them and judge them I think that this the public community has 
come to believe that everything is some kind of secret conspiracy and that there's that there's some always some ulterior nefarious um, motive behind you know somebody's statements and I think that's that's difficult I it's in the long run is going to they're going to shoot themselves in the foot because if you want people to be open you need to make them comfortable and listen to them so I think that's really all there is to it I think that you make a really good point. And what you're saying is important because one of the things that we have been experiencing is this, you know, um, people being excited to release information and releasing it without permission or prior to when they were supposed to, which is one of the reasons that the group, you know, was so careful with uh, who was coming in and in, in that that uh, area. So I think the group has to be more careful with the sharing of the information and, and its lessons learned. But you make a great point and. I think that uh, it'll be incumbent on us, and I think my listeners will understand, to uh, go the route you're talking about, being more careful with the information, even if it uh, frustrates the audience. Because I've learned this, too, as a journalist. When you cover scientists, it's it's extremely difficult. And I think that's why so many journalists get it wrong. They just don't have the patience to work with scientists. Uh, and scientists don't always make it easy because... They are very careful about the way that their information, that the communicating scientific information, especially when it comes to research or, or theory, is is so nuanced and complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and one misstep can cause a, a very big uh, misunderstanding, which causes problems. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, if you go back and read earlier scientific papers, even from the early 1900s, so read a paper by Einstein or something like this and actually read his paper, you find that what the scientists in the day used to do is there used to be speculation. They, they used to speculate. So they would, they would present their results and do it very carefully and, 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 and correctly. And then the discussion section at the end would usually lapse into speculation on what things might be like or what they believe. Um, and science has moved away from that. In fact, that's any, any speculation in a paper is very quickly um, very quickly uh, criticized by reviewers and um, we're not really allowed to we're really not they they really discourage that type of behavior at this point so so now you get into a situation where you know you you put a scientist in public and a Q&A section session and you ask them well what do you think well i'm going to some of that is speculation and and a careful scientist you know is going to you say well let me speculate or this is speculation but but very quickly it, you know when this stuff is just released without those you know those nuanced indications then um then it can become very problematic right right and it's also it's also difficult to respond on the fly like that i think that you know when writing a scientific paper preparing a talk it really does take you take you a good period of time to make sure that every statement you're making is is correct and 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 is worded to say exactly what you want it to say um i have always called that making your papers bulletproof i have a colleague in england who calls it making them bomb proof i guess mm -hmm. he writes better papers than i do <laughs> 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 but 
but you 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 really do put the time in to make sure that that you know no one can criticize you for the statements you're making you know but when you're being asked questions you know in a Q&A session or during a talk or or you know a dinner conversation at a table the situation's very different it's hard to put those it's hard to make uh, careful statements that, that are going to be um, immune from criticism. Mm-hmm. And then also, yeah, and like you've said earlier, kind of <clears throat> taken out of context. And one of the um, perpetrators, what the the UK tabloids, bless their hearts, um, do all not always <laughs> get the facts straight. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, they tr- they try to sensationalize. And, and for instance, you've had an experience, and I was wondering how your experience went, where they wrote an article about you and your ideas. Yes, I had, well, I had written a piece for an online journal called The Conversation last, uh, last June or so, a year ago. Um, they had contacted our media department, actually, and wanted a physicist to write a piece on UFOs. And so I... I, I agreed that I would do that, and basically I wrote a an opinion piece, um, basically stating that scientists should study these things. Uh, that's really all that I said in the in the in the paper, and I I spent four days writing that paper. So I spent a lot of effort in in writing it and had it proofread by you know several of my colleagues before submitting it, um, and I was. Um, and once it once it was out, I was surprised at how much press it got. And then I was surprised at how you would have articles written about my article. And so, so despite the fact that I carefully worded things and was very careful in my statements, the articles written about my article were, you know, much more highly speculative and made some statements about what I had said that I didn't really say. You know, for instance, I think one headline was that. You know, former NASA scientist says that government's hiding information on UFOs or something, and and I, and I, I was, I, I remember one one afternoon I just buried my head in my hands and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? This is, <laughs> I've I've now learned a very valuable lesson. This is what happens when a scientist steps outside the scientific community and interacts with the public, um, and I'm sure that, I'm sure politicians feel this on a daily basis, but I. Um, but that's the the first day that I really felt it, and there's nothing you can do about it. I can't take it back. I can't, you know, I can't make a statement to clarify or correct it. And you just have to let it let it go, which is which is a tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. And I can't remember his name, cause I know it's something like Cosmo. But uh, the the scientist spoke recently at SETI, kind of making the same argument you were making. That it's something that we need to look into at least to keep an eye. Uh, you know, our, our uh, oh, Silvano, Silvano yes, Colombano. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I was friend. I I worked with him at NASA Ames. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and then of course he's he's kind of like shied away from from speaking at all in the public because uh, his argument similar to yours was completely misconstrued out there and. Uh, so much so that he's just like, well, I'm not going to talk to any of you anymore, and uh, that's part of the problem that happens. Yeah, it is, and it's and and it's you know you can it's easy to blame the blame the scientist for it, but you know they're the ones putting their career on the line doing this and putting their reputation on the line. So it's a it's a difficult thing, you know. If you if you want the information, if you want information from somebody, you have to make it come make them comfortable to tell you. 
Yeah, I agree. And and I think our goal is going to be, at least with, with any influence I have, especially um, being kind of the press guy with the group, will default to making the scientists comfortable rather than uh, – public just because that's that's who we're trying to get involved in trying to make a safe space for yeah. um and I, and I and i think that if they feel comfortable they'll tell you i i mm-hmm. think we you know most scientists are very excited about the work that they do and you know this is what we're interested in this is what drives us this is what we think about 24 7 um and i think that we are most scientists are eager to share share their thoughts on the topics that interest them. So I think that yeah, that'll go a long way. Mm-hmm. So we've got a break coming up here, and then we will get into what you talked about at the conference, um, which okay. I find extremely interesting. However, one last question before we go to break is, uh, you know, having uh, said what you said earlier about this kind of avoiding speculation, uh, it is interesting, and I find it really interesting, that papers that come out, such as the Tabby Star uh, it was actually in that original paper that came out uh, where they speculated on the potential uh, intelligent civilization or Dyson Sphere um, hypothesis. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and, and I find that – I think that, that that speculation is an important part of science. You're, you're basically considering potential hypotheses, and, and I think that it's, it's not – it's not helpful helpful to um, to stop scientists from speculating. They should be speculating. That's what that's part of what we do, and it's good for us to do that out in the open with other scientists, so that there can be a discourse. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for that discussion for the first part. We're going to go take a break real quick here. We'll be back in just a few seconds. Those of you listening on uh, a radio station will hear a commercial break. The rest of you will hear a short musical interlude. And uh, once we're back, we'll be back with Professor Kevin Knuth to talk more about UFOs. Welcome back to Open Mind GFO Radio. This is Alejandro Rojas, your host for the show, and I'm talking to um, Professor Kevin Knuth, and uh, we're actually going to now get into your talk at the at the uh, AAPC, which was Constraints on Breakaway Societies Engaged in Relativistic Interstellar Travel. And it's funny you use that framework, because I'm not sure if you're aware, but there is the, a conspiracy theory about breakaway societies. Have you heard about that? I have heard about that, and I and I think that's probably where the term originally originated, or just where it originated. And um, but here I mean something a bit different. So right, which is really interesting. So I guess to begin with, you had a quote at the beginning of your your talk, which I think is important. Uh, yes, it was a quote from Malov and Matlov's The Starflight Handbook. Um, basically, it says, interstellar travel may still be in its infancy, but adulthood is adulthood is fast approaching, and our descendants will someday see childhood's end. So uh, we're really getting close to traveling faster and faster, and I think 
this graph then that you showed next was really important, kind of outlining how fast have we gone? What speeds have we achieved and what speeds are we looking at? And you separate two areas. Um, one area in particular you were looking at was the region of extraordinary propulsion. And how would you define that? That Let's see. The, so that graph I got from a paper by Garcia Escartin and Chamorro Posada um, from Acta Astronautica, and the paper is called Scouting the Spectrum for Interstellar Travelers. And basically, they designated that region of extraordinary propulsion as being a region that basically is an order of magnitude, a factor of 10 times faster than the, um, the fastest objects we've observed, the fastest natural objects we've observed. So... The fastest objects we've observed are basically hypervelocity neutron stars um, that were observed going about about a half a percent the speed of light. So, um, so ten times faster than that, you're basically looking at um, looking at five percent the speed of light as being the region of extraordinary propulsion. That's, those are basically the speeds you need to achieve to be able to perform interstellar travel to the nearest stars in tens of years, basically. Mm -hmm. And we're breaching this in that our, our proposed Aurora Orion starship, and I'm assuming this is with uh, the SLS uh, rocket um, system that, that we will be kind of at the cusp of, of those areas of speed. Well, I think the Orion Starship was a was a nuclear fusion um, starship, so oh, okay. those were some using nuclear power. I don't think we're we're quite at that stage yet. We're, I think, the fastest um, object, the fastest propulsion that's been considered is this. Um, are the basically using a laser to shine onto a small solar sail mm. uh, to accelerate a craft out of the solar system. And so some of this 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 techniques being considered for um, what is it breakthrough starshot I think it's called, mm -hmm. um, which is a mission of they're they're intending to sell send small cell phone sized probes to Alpha Centauri this way. The expected speeds should be up to about twenty percent the speed of light. So so that means you're basically going to get there in about twenty years twenty year travel time to um, Alpha Centauri. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so, uh, which, which just kind of, we're getting close, or at least we're starting we're, to have ideas. Well, we're, yeah, we're having, we have ideas and we're trying, so mm -hmm. that's, that's the good thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then to speak kind of, uh, I guess to move this along to, uh, I'll let you kind of bring us there, I guess, um, to get to your breakaway kind of theory or idea here. Sure. The, I'm basically, I had, you know, growing up watching science fiction, you always have your heroes, you know, dash off at warp speed or go through hyperspace, which is effectively faster than light travel. So they can get from one star system to another and, and in a short period of time. And basically 
I like to think of it this way. You you want to, it's it's not a fun it's not a fun science fiction story if it takes them fifty years to get to the to the star <laughs> system they want to get to, and then they have to come back because by the time they come back, it's a hundred years later. Uh, they're late for dinner, <laughs> very late for dinner, and so it doesn't make for a good a good science fiction tale. So. Um, <clears throat> So a lot of science fiction focuses on faster than light travel. And I think that that has kind of that fact has kind of biased people, even scientists into believing that the only way to get to the nearest stars is to go faster than light. Now, now some scientists, some physicists who've really thought about this would realize, well, wait a minute, you you don't have to go faster than light. You can go if, as long as you get up to relativistic speeds, you get going some reasonable percentage of the speed of light, you you find that relativity works for you. It actually helps you out um, in that going very fast, you know, the clocks on the spacecraft will be going, moving more slowly relative to those in the rest of the galaxy. Um, and so while it may take 100 years for the ship to travel you know, some distance to the nearest star, it will only, for the travelers, depending on how fast they go, it may only take you know, a few days to months or whatever. It depends, it depends on the speed. So you, you, a lot of physicists have realized that using rel- with relativity will work in your favor if you get going close to the speed of light. Um, however, we don't have the technology to do this. There are... Um, very serious engineering challenges. The amount of energy required is is insane. The um, the fact that you're going to be barreling through space at close to the speed of light, you're going to fly into things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to be able to shield your craft from that. Um, space isn't empty. You've got about one hydrogen atom per cubic meter. Um, and so now when you're traveling at close to relativistic speeds, the, from the perspective of the traveler, the distances actually get shortened. So this whole the space between you and the, pl- and the star system you're heading to actually shrinks and is compressed. But what that does is that means that these, these very diffuse hydrogen atoms in space are basically compressed. And so before you know it, you're flying through a wall of hydrogen gas at close to the speed of light, which will tear your ship apart in, in very short order. So, so I think most scientists who have realized that you could travel from you know star to star, moving at relativistic speeds, while that physically would work, um, the engineering challenges are so so um, difficult that it's it's not really worth considering that. And the and the other problem is that for those at home, it's still going to take you hundreds of years to do it. Hmm. So I've, I've actually heard a lot of scientists say, so what's the point? What civilization would, would do this? And I, and I was reading about that once and I actually came across that statement. You know, it's, even if you can go relativistic speeds, the traveler could, could traverse those distances, but it would still take years for those at home. So what civilization would ever undertake such a challenge? And I thought, well... <clears throat> It wouldn't be so bad if you were traveling with your friends because you just would meet up with your friends again and then you could you could share information and so it wouldn't you know that would that would work and and then I then I realized that you really would have to if you were an interstellar traveler traveling at relativistic speeds you would have to abandon this idea of having a home world because you, you can't go home again 
um, it's equivalent really to racing ahead into the future. So I, I imagine that, you know, you, you can still ask the question what society would do that. Well, there are societies who, who just travel. We call them nomads. They're nomadic. Mm. And um, would anybody really do that? Well, you can ask yourself, would anybody really sign up to be part of SpaceX's Mars Colony project, a one-way trip to Mars? <laughs> yeah, hundreds of people signed up for that. Of course people would sign up for it. People are crazy. They'll do all <laughs> sorts of things. <laughs> so so I, I thought, you know, well, these societies, you could, you could do this if you were nomadic. It was, this would be really pretty straightforward as, as long as you had the technology. Um, which would have to overcome those serious engineering challenges. But if you had that technology, then, you know, I could travel off to a star system 30 light years away. You could travel off to another one 30 light years away. We could agree to meet back here in, in a few months. And for us, it would be a few months later. For everybody back here on Earth, it would be 60 years later. But so what? Who cares? <laughs> you and I are meeting back, and that's that was the idea. Right. So it's so interesting. Space-time nomads is what you call them. And right. um, you have this picture of, which I think is a perfect picture because it's what I envisioned too when you first said it, is it Battlestar Galactica, that armada, you know, where they were, <laughs> it was the same That's thing. Right. They were a breakaway society looking for somewhere to live, whereas what you're talking about is more of a society going to be, I guess, committed to exploration. Um, right. And and even though, yeah, because they would be on their own. If they, if they left Earth at these tremendous speeds and then came back, they may have gone to um, Alpha Centauri and back. And in their time, it only was a couple of years. Uh, but in our time, it was it was hundreds of years. And so that's what why they would be, once they left, they're saying goodbye to the rest of civilization. That's That's right. Yep. Really? Yeah, and, and mm -hmm. it's kind of stunned me when I started working the numbers. I was really surprised. I thought, realized that wow, if you traveled at, if you traveled at a hundred, well, if you traveled at a one g acceleration, which is the acceleration of gravity, and you could maintain that acceleration, you could get across the galaxy in about twenty years, your time. And and I thought, wow, that's actually much better than you know, plans that I've heard on getting to Alpha Centauri. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so I was, I was rather surprised that you could traverse those, those great distances that quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, going from one side of the galaxy to the other, it's going to, you know, for everybody on earth, it'll take 80,000 years for us to get there, you know, a 1G acceleration. And a 1G acceleration will put you into speeds well above 99% the speed of light. So you'll be going very relativistic at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea. And so, and what you've put together, like, it seems like the precision would have to be very accurate. So, because one thing you've proposed is that the, this large group, let's say a Battlestar Galactica type armada, could uh, head out. And then some decide to go explore one area, some explore another, and then they have these meetup points. But, uh, right. it would, do they have to be extremely precise, like to, to the second or even more? Uh, they, yeah, they'd have to be relatively precise. You'd you would have to have, you know, you'd require some dwell time in the system that you're visiting, you know, to make meetups more probable. Um, so these either would have to be planned well in advance, or you'd have to come up with a strategy for 
for creating a network of traveling paths that such that the distances are commensurate and you'll end up meeting at meeting every now and again at certain in certain places mm -hmm. so I started I basically started modeling this to see what type of constraints that would put on your your the, the, the topology of the traveler network mm -hmm. and and so I'm still I'm still working on this to see see how, how this could work but it's pretty cool. You have this video where you show at least one um, network that you modeled where, you know, these craft kind of all head out from one point and uh, head out to where they're exploring and then also head back to meetup points and such. Right. Yeah. So in that example, I just had them travel to a location and then and then like a caravan to a location and then the caravan would split up to other locations and continue kind of like a tree graph. And um, and at every point, they could either travel to a new destination or go back to an old one. And um, and I ran that simulation for 2,030 years of time in the galaxy, and um, and just to see how this would work for the travelers, the amount of time that the travelers experienced ranged from from about eight months to to two years. So. So in so it, it kind of surprised me that you know you've got you don't have that much dispersion in time, even over two thousand year time period in the galaxy, and if they were a little more careful about what star systems they visited, and their the distances that they traveled, they they don't need to travel in straight lines. They could arc slightly to increase the path length. If they made those path lengths commensurate, then you'd increase the probability of meetups, which would which would work. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a danger uh, if you're late to a meetup or if you have a breakdown, you're kind of <laughs> you're out of the network. I mean, yeah, if you well, if you're late, if you're late, you can hopefully catch up with somebody at another meetup um, at some other point in another system at another time. That would be good. Um, a breakdown would be very bad. So I'd imagine that you'd probably travel in caravans rather than rather than individually traveling mm -hmm. as an individual would be extremely dangerous. If you break down, you're you are likely not to see anybody, you know, from your society for another, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. So you can't just sit around and wait for somebody to help you. Mm -hmm. It so, would depend on uh -huh. it would depend on the density of travelers in the network as well. So so depending on how many travelers there are, you know, if you're not traveling in a caravan, would tell you how often um, new travelers arrive at a destination. So, so all these are all these are basically parameters in the models that would describe how a society like this would behave. Mm -hmm. And an interesting, uh, you bring up some points. So, for instance, that uh, you know, one of the things that we saw at the conference was this estimation of of what uh, speeds. Um, you know, the object at the 2004 Nimitz uh, encounter uh, might have been uh, achieving, uh, given the observations of, of the pilot, that David Fravor and others. Um, so those are extreme speeds. Those are uh, potential um, evidence that there, there might be somebody out there who's been able to figure out this sort of thing out. Um, and they could be doing what you're talking about. And if they are... Uh, it leads to an interesting perspective on their side, which would, for instance, as you put it, make it uh, so there's no reason to make friends with the locals. <laughs> right. Yeah, basically I had to get some idea of what 
um, speeds you might see, I basically estimated some of the accelerations in some of these cases, including the Nimitz case that um, that uh, Robert Powell and Peter Reale looked at. Uh, and I found accelerations basically ranging from hundreds of Gs of acceleration to 2,000 plus Gs of acceleration. So, so I think in my models that I used, I used about 100 G acceleration. And with, you know, if you if so, if these craft could sustain that kind of acceleration for a period of time, then if you accelerated from, you know, from the sun to your destination, and, and if you accelerate halfway and then decelerate at that rate the other half of the way you could literally traverse the galaxy in about 120 days of ship time. So less than four months of travel time to get from one side of the galaxy to the other, which I thought would be really amazing. So um, so I took that as evident, you know, so the people often ask the question, you know, with these craft, why do people quickly assume that they're spacecraft? And I think the answer is because the accelerations are those what you would expect to see in a spacecraft. Mm. And in fact, these aren't just, this wouldn't be just the, the, the ones we saw that were encountered in the Nimitz case. They wouldn't just be sp just any ordinary spacecraft. They'd be excellent spacecraft. So I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now the, and then, and then again, so the point is that if you're traveling from one side of the galaxy to the other, or even, or even just a few hundred light years, there's really no reason to make friends with the locals because the next time you're here visiting, um, that's that civilization you were visited you visited last time you were here would be could potentially be gone. So, if right, so if you, for instance, if you're traversing the galaxy, you know it's going to take you eighty thousand years to get from one side to the other. Um, that's a hundred sixty thousand years. So, an individual who was who visited Earth and then went to the other side of the galaxy and came back. Um, and came back at present day, that means the last time they were here on Earth was 160,000 years ago. Well, there were no people here then. <laughs> so there were yeah. no society. There were people, but there were no societies. Um, and if they, if they intend to do another, make another trip like that, they won't be back again for 160,000 years. So why, why bother landing on the White House lawn? There isn't going to be a White House the next time they come back. Right. And another point you made was that, uh, you know, uh, there has been talk about the similarity in uh, what people have witnessed, you know, back in the 40s to what they witness now. Well, in this scenario that you put forth, uh, even though, you know, something was seen in the 40s and then seen again in the 2000s, um, it, you know, could have gone somewhere and come back. And it, to that craft, it's only been maybe uh, last time it was here was lunch and now it's the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> So it's the same craft. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's one thing that really surprised me because in my in that simulation I ran, I ran it for 2000 years and it was only, you know, anywhere from 8 months to 2 years for those individual craft. So if you imagine, you know, there there were sightings of flying shields in ancient Rome. And if we would assume that those shields were actually one of these spacecraft, then it could actually be the same individuals in the same spacecraft that came back a second time, you know, in present day, and the last time they were here was two millennia ago. That's very possible. Mm -hmm. And so, why don't the craft change design? Why don't they? Why don't they improve? You know, why don't they? Um, why don't you see technological improvements in these craft? Well, because they're the same craft. <laughs> that would be that would be the answer in this case, which I thought was pretty surprising, but it, but it would make some kind of sense. Mm -hmm. 
And then a unique opportunity you talk about to uh, kind of observe evolution. Yeah, that I thought was really exciting, and I, I, I then thought, well, what if what if I traversed the galaxy? You know, if I if I if I did went and did this, I would have, you know, every trip across the galaxy, every round trip I'd take would be one hundred sixty thousand years so of of time in the galaxy. So if I um, in a fifty year lifespan, I could conceivably traverse the galaxy one hundred fifty times. And that would be equivalent to racing ahead about 12 million years into the future. Wow. So I, it would be very interesting because you could literally watch, you know, 12 million years of evolution happen on a planet, um, you know, at, at, at some sparse interval, 100, 150,000 year intervals, which would be really interesting. I mean, you're their biologists would be looking at biology at a very different scale than we study biology. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, they would be studying biology like paleontologists study biology. Um, So you would have the opportunity to watch evolution at work. And heck, you could experiment with it if you wanted to. And uh, I think that's interesting, an interesting possibility as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, what what really hits me about your discussion and, and this idea also is that we're not, especially when you look at your your original graph with uh, you know the speeds we're looking to achieve in the fairly fairly near well at least you know ideas that we think we can build craft that can move at certain speeds. Um, the potential exists um, for the not too distant future, and I would imagine just like you talked about, uh, you know, people willing to go to Mars on this one way trip. It's very realistic that there could be a group of people that decide to do this. And, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and spend their life gathering amazing information, taking a planet and observing its evolution. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, if you if I didn't have a family, you could sign me up. Mm-hmm. So there, there it is. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, this is really interesting. I know that there will be more information up about your talk on the SCU site uh, eventually, but uh, I do want to say thank you very much for participating. And, um, you know, as far as the future goes, uh, do you think that uh, there is people interested in this topic? Do you think there's hope? Do you see like kind of a positive movement in the scientific community that at least begin to be um, open to speculation in this area? I, I do. I was nervous about the article that I wrote for the conversation where I basically said that we should be studying these phenomena. <clears throat> and um, and I was worried about what kind of backlash or commentary I would get from other scientists. And, and I was very surprised to see that I, I got a good number of emails from other scientists and the responses were all positive. They were all, bravo, somebody's needed to say this for a long time. We've needed to study these things for a long time. It's been, you know, 50 or 70 years and nobody's really looked at this seriously and we ought to. And those were basically the kinds of comments that I got. I got comments like that ranging from that to, to I've been studying this in secret for, for this many years and I have, <clears throat> you know, images of plasma around these objects that I'm trying to study and I'm, you know, and things like this, you know, we should get together and compare notes and I'll show you what I know. And so I had, had a lot of people very interested and so I'm hoping that a scientific conference like, like SEUs would be, you know, is going to grow in size and you'll see more scientists the next time around. Mm-hmm. 
And do you know, did you hear any feedback from that Harvard uh, professor? Do you think you influenced uh, him at all? <laughs> Avi Loeb, I believe his name is. Oh, Avi Loeb. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know him personally, and I didn't have any feedback from him. I don't know what if you know if my if my article influenced him at all or if it's just the you know a sign of the times i think that the luis elizondo coming out with the announcement about a tip was a big deal and mm-hmm. i think it'll be a bigger deal after may and i think that people are realizing that you know our government's been studying these things for a long time and they continue to study them i think that'll be a uh, kind of a, it will be a revelation to some and and the fact is other governments studying them as well and mm-hmm. that may that may induce some governments of some of these other countries to come out and say yeah no we've studied these things too and 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 I'm hoping that that scientists will get involved and we can start figuring out what these things are and in some cases they may be natural phenomena that are worth learning about and in other cases they might be artificial you know made by somebody else maybe mm-hmm. not maybe and maybe extraterrestrial that's interesting too so if I, I look at it this way if if there were extraterrestrial craft visiting earth we would all want to know about it mm-hmm we all ought to know about it, so I, it's worth looking into, and and so and it's worth studying. Well, thank you so much for joining me this morning or afternoon for you, I guess, uh, <laughs> yeah. out there on the East Coast. Um, but thank you so much for joining. This has been so very interesting, and I look forward to one day having you back. All right, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much to Kevin for being on the show. It was so great to have him. Uh, I guess you could Google his name and also look him up at uh, the uh, the at Albany um, State University of New York and uh, to read more about him. But he's got a lot of really cool stuff going on. Of course, in the science world, he's doing lots of cool stuff as well. The lecture that he did for the Scientific Coalition for Ufology at this event, this AAPC event, was great. So we kind of covered, generalized what he was talking about. But I can't wait for you to, to see the full presentation. He said he did comp- permission to for uh, the SCU to post that. So keep an eye at explorescu.org. And it looks like they're going to be putting the videos up in the AAPC link. So you can see that there. And they've got pictures from the event of all of the presenters and it looks like that's where they're going to put the videos as well so very excited for you all to see that because uh there were just some incredible lectures including kevin's here and actually uh, there were funnier jokes in the presentation too uh kevin is just absolutely a ton of fun to listen to and his lecture was a lot of fun so Really happy to have him involved in and thankful that we have someone of his stature and background, you know, to be here to answer questions and to speculate and give us some educated ideas on on some uh, things that could be going on out there. I think that one of the things I really love about his talk is this perspective thing that if time is much different to to whatever may be coming here, if there is something coming here, then um, that may explain some of their enigmatic behavior and or motivations and that we haven't really uh, taken a lot of that into consideration, I don't think. So uh, really interesting to hear him talk on that. Also, congratulations to the SCU for putting together an event that I think is one of the most important ones to have been put together on all of this. So great job to them. 
be sure to check out explorescu.org for the official releases of information. And as Kevin talked about, you know, control and making sure that information is released properly. And of course, that uh, all of the proper permissions are obtained are very, very important to scientists. So you'll be able to find the official releases of information at explorescu.com. By the way, if you're interested in helping out the Scientific Coalition uh, for Ufology, there are a couple positions they're looking for. I actually am helping out, you know, my aspect is, is as an advisor when it comes to the press and communications and things like that. And to that effect, one of the things we're looking at, at least for internal communications, is someone who can help with that, help with uh, maybe sending out e- emails, but even more so being in the board meetings and taking notes and sharing that information internally as well. So this is kind of an internal information gathering and sharing uh, responsibility. But what's great about this is that this position is going to be able to keep up to speed on all of the really cool things that SCU is looking to do. What are they looking to do? Really, they obtain entries, essentially, uh, white papers, investigations that people have done out there, and then they reveal them like a scientific organization would do to make sure that uh, the science is vetted, it's good science, good research, and then those are posted. Uh, Really, there's only a couple papers that have been out there, but there are some in the mix as well that are under review currently. So we're going to see really good stuff coming uh, from this group going forward. And already you can click on a link called papers and you're going to see a lot of case reports, science papers. Uh, Not all of these are SCU papers, but uh, papers that have been written in the past that are our scientific papers. So this is kind of going to be a repository for everybody on uh, scientific analysis and and information regarding this topic. So really good stuff, but these guys did a great job. So if you're interested in helping on doing some of that internal communications, get a hold of me. You can send an email to paranormalreporter at uh, gmail.com. Um, also, you can go to my Facebook or my Twitter. Uh, just look for Alejandro Rojas. If you type Alejandro Rojas UFOs, you're going to find me. So yeah, send me a message and, and we'll get you rolling on that. Thank you very much uh, for your interest. And thanks for meeting some of you guys at uh, SEU, some of my listeners, because my listeners are extremely intelligent. Although not all of you have PhDs, you all should, and you could if you wanted to. You know, if you had the time, you could do it. You guys are like super geniuses. But uh, it was great to have uh, so many listeners there and to be able to meet some of you. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, in fact, I wanted to do some shout outs. Kevin, who I met, that's the name of someone I met. I met a lot of people. But in particular, I want to uh, say hello and thank you to uh, some of my patrons. So I want to say thank you to Amy, to Andrew, to David, to Evan, to Gary, Guillaume, uh, James, Jason, Joseph, Kendra, Kevin, Layla. Um, let's see who else. Les, it may be Leela. Layla. 
Richard, Ron, and Ryan. And let's see, there's a couple more. Stuart, thank you all so much to, uh, you know, patrons new and old for helping me what, with what I do at the Patreon website. Um, it's a ton of help. It's greatly appreciated. And if you are a Patreon uh, member, you can go there and see more information as well and contact me uh, on there. And I do share some secret information there. In fact, with my Patreons, I kind of shared more information about what I'm up to and what I'm going to be doing in the future. So you can go check that out there if you're a patron. Otherwise, just listen to the show. I'll share that information with you either way. Uh, more information getting shared with you is about the UFO Congress. So if you were getting the Open Mind U- newsletters, uh, you know, uh, there we are, have been in this transition for email. So the email server we have is not working. That's why I didn't say send an email to contact at openminds.com. Um, uh, instead, you know, uh, what we, I've been trying to work with that. But the UFO Congress has got their email system up, and it's kind of a lot of the people that were on the uh, – really, it was hard to tell the difference because the Congress and Open Minds were combined, and now the Congress is just separate. So you may get emails for the from the UFO Congress. Please don't hit the junk mail if you don't want those emails. If you don't want them, that is just fine. I totally understand. Uh, but do hit the unsubscribe button and then you will be unsubscribed. Don't hit that junk mail one. That hurts us. But I would really recommend that you stay on the email list because you're going to get the latest information that we're sharing uh, right on that list. So you're going to get open minds information, information about this podcast information about the conference itself. And we have a lot of great speakers coming up to the conference. Uh, I'll tell you, Lou is going to be there and a lot of things related to what Lou is up to. So for a little hint on uh, some of the great speakers. Speaking of which, of course, one of the, th- the big things Lou uh, Elizondo is up to with uh, To The Stars Academy and Tom along in that whole group uh, working with uh, Lou Elizondo, the former uh, chief of that uh, Pentagon UFO project who uh, spoke at the SCU. is this history channel show that they have coming up called Unidentified. And it's going to be really important. Lou says he's seen some episodes uh, that are they're really good, what he's seen so far, that they're working with very professional people. This is some of what he shared at the conference. Of course, I'm going to have an interview with him in just the next few weeks uh, where we'll talk about more of all of this. But he did share with us that much of what he couldn't share um, is going to be in the show. So, for example, there the Nimitz case is incredible, and uh, it's just an extraordinary case. We've talked a lot about it. The 2004 case. It was in the New York Times uh, article that you know kind of released the information on Elizondo and the Pentagon program. You'll see more about that too when you see the video of the SCU uh, analysis on that. But you will also see on the television show even more cases that the Pentagon Project worked on and uh, witnesses from these events as well. So finally, what we've all been waiting for, what we've all been hoped, hoping for, it's going to be in this History Channel Project uh, program that's coming up here. So really exciting. That show starts up in May, and uh, we should have uh, Lou on before that to tell us even more. So that'll be really exciting as well. So 
Otherwise, check out openminds.tv. All of those stories that Martin and I spoke about at the beginning of the program, I have listed on the front page there under the UFO headlines. Also, check out ufocongress.com for updates. We'll be opening tickets and putting up uh, speaker lists soon. Uh, Also, at ufocongress.com, there's a store with a bunch of really cool UFO and alien products that you'll want to check out. So if you're into that sort of thing, wearing those clothes and stuff, they're super cool. So check out the store there. Otherwise, I want to thank Martin Willis of Podcast UFO for joining us at the beginning of the show. I want to thank Systematics for the bumper music, Caleb Hanks for the amazing open and close music, and finally, of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for being here once again. Thank you for hanging in there. It's been a few weeks since we've had a show, but we're going to be back rolling. We'll have another great show next week and a bunch of incredible shows coming up. Uh, We're kind of got a new era. I feel, you know, like moving in a more credible and important direction with this topic than we've ever done before. So uh, we'll probably have some slight changes coming in and just kind of bringing everything to a better and higher level. So this is all going to be a lot of fun and it's going to be fun having you all along on this journey as well. So thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, adios muchachos.